It's fun to see those pictures and to celebrate. If you were here this last week, you know that we ended our one epic week together with a, a, one service all together with baptisms, worship. It really was a great celebration. So thanks for coming and thanks for all those who helped serve and participate to make it happen for us. It was a great, it was a great time. Well, um, I want to say welcome. Thanks for being here. My name's Scott, if we haven't met before. And if you're here and you're a part of South Hills Church and you consider it your church home, I'm just grateful that you have called this place a place of home for you, a place you can worship. Uh, the good news is uh, there's also lots of people who are investigating South Hills Church. Over the course of the summer, the course of the year, have been coming who are new, who have uh, been invited by you, friends or family members, or just been coming to say, hey, we're looking for a place to land. And I just want to say, if that's you, if you've been coming here, you're new, you're a guest, I just want to say on behalf of all of us who call South Hills Church home, Welcome. We're glad you're here, and we hope that you find a home here with us um, and be a place of worship for you. We really are grateful that you're here. But we also understand, for those of us who do call South Hills Church home, we also recognize that if you're coming in as a guest, if you've been invited by someone, you're investigating the church, that uh, sometimes when you come into a new place, especially like a new church, you're wondering, what's this place like? The big question you have is, okay, who are the people that are there? Well, what are the people, what do they do in the service? What do they practice? Why do they practice certain things? And so for some of you coming into a new place, there's a certain sense of curiosity, but there's also maybe a level of anxiety of like, well, what's going to happen? Am I going to be put on the spot? Am I going to be acknowledged? Um, are the things that they're going to do really weird? How does, how does all this work? And so sometimes there's just those questions that come up. And it's not just when you come to a new church. Many of us feel those things, whether we go to a new workplace, place or a new school or maybe your guest in someone else's home and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm here at their home. What do they, what are the practices of this home? Have you ever had that thought and that wonder, like, I need a little direction. Is this a, a shoes on or a shoes off home, right? Have you ever had that, like, uh, what, you know, and you sometimes will ask that um, to try to understand or watch and see what people do. Uh, maybe you have a meal at someone's house and you're thinking to yourself, okay, is this a serve yourself kind of a dinner? Are you, why wait to be served? Is this a, a pray before the meal household? And okay, if it is a pray before the meal household, do we hold hands while we pray? That would be good to know, you know what I mean? Like one of you forewarned, you know, that that's going to happen. So there's just things that people do in their homes, practices that you don't necessarily automatically know, but you do want to understand. And as you come into that environment, you kind of want to understand what are those practices, what are those things? And it could be some just simple household practices. It could be traditions that people have in their homes or in their families. Maybe for you in your family, a tradition for you growing up or tradition now is that on Saturdays, it's pancakes, right? Every, every Saturday, we're making pancakes or you're going out for pancakes. I don't know one or the other, but maybe that's part of it. Or on Tuesdays, maybe the tradition for dinner when you come together is what? What would you eat on Tuesdays? Tacos. Some of you are like tacos on Tuesdays. Some of you are like, no, it's lasagna. What are you talking about, right? For my family, it's tacos on Thursday, which my kids love, but they're still a little confused. Why are we doing tacos on Thursday? Well, that's just what we do. So that's, that's the way it works, okay? <laughs> Every family's a little different. You have different practices. You have different things, but you don't automatically know those coming in. So if you're a guest at South Hills Church, you are wondering, what are the practices of this church? What does this church do? Why do they do it? And um, we have a class called Starting Point, which Candace talked about earlier, which helps with that, is an introduction to our church, why we do certain things, helps you get to know us, helps us get to know you a little bit better. And we encourage you to do that, especially if you're here as a guest or you're new to South Hills Church. 
But there's also parts that we can't fully explain in one simple class together. So what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is talk about practices of our church, church practices. What are the things that we do? Why do we do them? And help you have a better understanding of kind of the background or the roots of that. Um, so before we do that, uh, let me just, before we talk more specifically about a specific church practice, I want to just talk generally about church practices that you'll experience here on a Sunday morning. So let me just talk about some of the church practices you'll experience here and really many uh, evangelical churches like ours. So you come to church and one of the practices we have is singing. And Scripture commands it. In fact, it talks about how we're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's a really, it's an opportunity for us to worship and, and be uh, glad in our hearts. And so we sing as part of our time together. And some of you are better singers than others, and that's okay. <laughs> the point is, it's an opportunity for us to express our worship to God, and we do that through singing. Another practice of the church is prayer. When you come together as the church, um, we pray, pray, pray together. In, in fact, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this, is, uh, this ought to be a priority. He says he's speaking to the church, and he's talking about how the church ought to function. He says, first of all, you ought to pray. And he doesn't say first of all in terms of order, like the first thing you do to start the service is pray. No, he's saying first of all in terms of the priority. When you gather together as a church, your priority is to be in prayer with God that we're responsive to him. And he says that we're to have supplications and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving. And he goes on to say, by the way, for all people, all people including, and he talks about government officials and um, even of the president. And sadly, lots of churches don't always practice that. But the reality is, Apostle Paul says, we're to pray. We're to pray for all people. And that ought to be a priority of the church, a practice of the church when we gather together. So there's prayer. Uh, third one uh, is scripture reading and teaching. So also in scripture, we see uh, there's uh, the command to um, read Scripture publicly. We'll see that again in First Timothy, um, and you see in Second Timothy that the, the need to teach, preach, proclaim the good news, to teach the, God's word. And so, again, that's part of the practice here at South Hills Church, and maybe you'll experience it at other churches as well. There's also the practice of communion. Um, that is the the experience of the expression of the bread and the cup that represent Christ's body and His blood that has given to us, and it's, a, it's a, a practice of the church. Maybe you've experienced that here or other places. Baptism, if you were here this last week, one of the practices that we have here is baptism. And so we got to celebrate, um, I think it was eight different people who were baptized, and it was a wonderful, wonderful celebration um, of this expression uh, of people really saying publicly that they've placed their faith in Jesus, and it's a really wonderful thing. So these are different church practices, and what we're going to do is talk about church practices, but we're going to focus in on these last two. And these last two church practices we're going to talk about because for, for some people, these create a little bit of confusion. Like, why do we do it? You know, what's the root behind it? How do we, what's the, the meaning of it? And so we want to try to help with the the clarity of why we do these certain things. And these two, and we kind of highlight them, uh, traditionally and theologically, these are what we call in our tradition the ordinances. These are ordinances of the church. And like, that's a weird word. Um, but ordinance really just means it's ordained by Christ. That is, Christ did it, and he taught on it, and it's, it's to be practiced by the church. And so he ordained it as a practice of the church. In some traditions, it falls into the category of sacraments. Um, in our tradition, we call it ordinance, but it's the same concept. Now, there's some debate 
over should there be more ordinances? And so some debate over the fact that maybe one of the ordinances of the church should be foot washing or penance or confession. Um, And so there's debate on how many ordinances or sacraments of the church. But one thing that's not debated are these two. These two are not debated in terms of, yes, this is commanded by Christ, done for Christ, by Christ, and should be practiced by the church. And so at South Hills Church, we practice these two things. These two things that are the ordinances. You'll probably never hear us, hear us refer to it that way, but they're things that we practice. And then the, the, the question that we want to answer is, well, why and why is it significant for us to do so? One thing that I'll mention that is unique about the ordinances, these two things, communion and baptism, is that these are reserved only for uh, people who have put their full faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are practices of the church for Christians, uh, and really Christians exclusively. And I, I mentioned that because we'll talk about why that is, but when you look at all the different church practices, if you're here and you're a guest and you've been invited by a friend and you're here and you're just, you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, that's great. You can participate in all of these practices. You can come and you can sing. And that's, that's fine. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you're just investigating the claims of Christ, if you're just coming because you're curious, you can sing with us. You can pray with us. You can come and you can learn from God's word and say, I want to understand the God of the Bible and I want us to understand who Jesus is. That's totally fine. And all those practices are for you. But when it comes to the ordinances, these two things, these practices, they they're reserved for those who have put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so that's just important for us to recognize and say, and I'll explain why as we continue on in our time today. Now, there's a third practice that we're going to be talking about because it's a three-week series, and so we added a third one. Um, it is not part of the, you know, ordinances of the church, but membership is something that we practice here at South Hills Church. Many churches practice it as well, and so we'll spend a week, we'll talk about why we value membership and the significance of that. And so that's what we'll be doing for the next three weeks. We'll be looking at communion, baptism, and membership. So if you're new, if you're a guest, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you're just coming and investigating, this will be helpful because you'll have a deeper understanding of the things that we practice here at South Hills Church. But I'll also say this, even if you have a church background, even if you've been coming to church for a long time, it's still very helpful for us to stop and say, why do we practice these things? What's behind the tradition? What's the meaning of it? What's the significance of it? And whether it's a refresher for you or you just, it'll be helpful for you to just to say, oh no, I didn't know that. That's what we're hoping for as well. Because the reality is sometimes we fall into, into traditions for tradition's sake, because everyone else is doing it around us, we can sometimes fall into tradition and not understand the full meaning of the tradition. And what we want to do is help capture that. And you know that to be true in other areas of our culture. There's traditions that we have that you don't understand the full meaning behind, okay? So let me just throw one out there. How about this one? Ready? The tooth fairy. You get that one? Okay, so how many of you taken baby teeth, put them under your kid's pillow, and then the next morning they wake up and there's money there? It's a tradition that lots of people follow. The question is, why? It's a little strange when you think about it. You know, put teeth under a pillow, poof, there's money. And and you're like, okay, well, where did that even come from? Well, many people don't know. You just do it because your parents did it for you and you want to do it for your kids and your grandkids or whatever it is. And and when you look back, there's, there's origins that many of us don't even, aren't even aware of. Like, it was not originally started with a tooth, a fairy. It was a, a mouse that was, like, hiding the tooth under a pillow, which is kind of gross if you don't like rodents, okay? So, 
there's just things that you're like, I didn't know that, but I still practice it, right? So even if you know the tradition, like Easter, for instance, one of those things that we just practice, hey, there's Easter comes and there's Easter bunnies and eggs. And you're like, those two things don't make sense to me. But somehow the tradition, you know, has, is there. And so it's helpful for us to stop and say, yeah, just because it's traditional and we are participating in it, what's the meaning behind it? And why is it significant? That's what we want to do. Even if you've grown up in the church and have a long history, it's still helpful for us to be reminded, why, why do we do it? What's behind it? Why is it significant? So today we're going to focus in on the practice of communion. And if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the longest teaching, by the way, on the subject of communion. So I picked the one that's like, hey, this is the most on this subject. We're going to focus in on that. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to that. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully receive the handout on your way in here has the passage printed for you that you can follow along with. Now, before we look at the passage, I do want to mention this, that when it comes to communion, uh, the, 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 the practice of communion has, has different labels or different terms depending on your, your church background or your spiritual background or what you've encountered. It can be called different things. And so for many people, it's been called the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about the Lord's Supper. That's communion. It's the same practice. It's just labeled a little bit differently. For some of you in your background, it's been called the Eucharist. Perhaps it's called the sacrament. The, you, there's different ways that people have termed it, but it's still the concept is the same. It's communion as we practice it here. Um, it's the bread and the cup that Jesus uh, modeled and taught. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to focus in on together. So with all that said, uh, please stand in honor of God's word. We'll read this passage and then we'll come back and we'll take a look at this subject together. First Corinthians chapter 11, <laughs> beginning of verse 17, it says this, in the following directives, I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be dis differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from this cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if, we're, if, if uh, we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, 
you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Okay, have a seat, please, and we'll take a look at this together. For those of you who are note takers, what I'd like to do is just begin with a very simple outline of this passage so you can begin to see how it, uh, the flow of the argument and where this is going. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it begins with a critique. <clears throat> it begins with a critique. This is a corrective passage. So Paul, the author, is writing to the church in Corinth and he's writing to correct certain practices that they're doing. And the practice that they're, they're um, in air over is communion, the communion, the Lord's Supper. And so he's writing to critique them. And then with that, after the critique, he then gives um, the teaching about the practice. So he's critiquing the behavior. Then he's teaching the tradition. He comes back and says, let me remind you. And he teaches about communion, why, why, why it matters and why Christ instituted it. Then um, he ends with the application verses 27 through 34, where he gives some final applications for practice in the church as they come together for the Lord's Supper. So that's kind of the, <clears throat> the outline of this passage. But let's look at the beginning back now at verse 17 at their critique. Here's where it begins. He says this, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. So clearly, the Apostle Paul is giving a critique He's frustrated. Now, here's the deal. When someone is doing something wrong or they need coaching or they're doing something in error, typically what we do is we say, hey, I'm going to commend you about some things and then I'm going to critique you on some things, right? It's the, it's the um, hug slug approach. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Apostle Paul skips that here. He's, he has nothing to commend them for. He doesn't say anything positive. He, in fact, says, I have nothing to praise you for in this matter. And he goes straight to critique. So now you understand kind of the tone and the problem that's going on. And Paul, the Apostle Paul is dressing it head on. He's, he's, there's a problem that he wants to address, and he has nothing to praise them for how they're, they're functioning right now as a church. So the question is, what's the problem? Let's look in the next verse. It says this, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So there's divisions in the church, which is never good. Um, in the church, really, we're united by Christ, and we're to be a body that is a body that functions together. That does not mean we all have to you know, dress alike, think alike, do everything alike, and be robots. No, there's different parts, but there needs to be unity in the body, and division just breaks all that down. So, he's just simply saying there's division. The question is, why are the divisions happening in the church? He goes on in the following verses. It says this, so then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, and another gets drunk. So, when he's talking here in verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. So he is talking about communion in this context. And, and in this context, in the early church here in Corinth, when they would come together for the communion time for the Lord's Supper, it would be a full meal. So he's talking about a full meal that they were uh, celebrating together when they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. So we don't do that when we practice communion on, on Sundays, but that's how they did it. But we do understand the concept of a full meal when the church comes together, because we call that what? 
a potluck. That's right. Okay, so we call it potlucks. They're coming together for a feast. Same concept, but this is a potluck gone bad, okay? So this is the potluck gone wrong. And Paul is just saying, simply saying, you're missing it. You're missing the point when you're coming together for this Lord's communion time, the Lord's supper, this communion time. Because in verse 21, it says, for when you are eating, some of you will go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. And so you're thinking to yourself, well, what's going on? How is this happening? Well, in order to understand this, you need to understand a little bit of the, the context of the culture of this time. So first century uh, in, in the Roman world, there wasn't the concept of a day off, okay? So people would, there was subsistence living. So you're a farmer, you're farming. You're, you're, make, you're getting food for the next day. If you're a household servant, you're working every single day. It's not like you have days off. And so for many people, they just didn't have days off. The only people that could get a day off are the wealthy. The wealthy people could take days off. And so what was happening is the church would say, hey, we're going to come together to celebrate the Lord's uh, Supper. We're going to have a feast. And the people who are wealthy would say, we're going to take the day off and we're going to start feasting, and we're going to start feasting early. And because they're wealthy, they bring the most food to the potluck, and they're bringing all the stuff. And then they say, we're not waiting around. We're going to start eating early. And by the time the working class people, the poor who have been working all day long, show up, the food's gone. Because all the wealthy people ate it, they're eating it, and they're getting drunk. And so now you get a little bit of the concept. Paul's saying, this isn't right. This is not good. And, and, uh, and, it, and it, it truly is not. And, but in order to, you know, he gets it, we get it, but he has to explain it to them. So he goes on, verse 20, uh, the next verse 22, he says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or, you dis- or you, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So he's saying to them, listen, when you are you're coming early and you're eating, you are creating this huge division. You're having your own private supper. You're not waiting for everyone else to show up. So then when everyone shows up, there's this big division. And the hallmark of the church, the hallmark of the church is that because of Jesus Christ, the, the playing field has been leveled, that we all have value, that we all have worth, regardless of your financial status or your social status or your gender or your ethnicity, that we are all equal before God, that He loves the world, that we all have value and worth. And what's happening, because the the wealthy people are coming early and eating all the food and they're getting drunk, they're humiliating the poor. They who have nothing, and it's creating this big division, and it is not good. And he says, I have nothing to praise you over this. You're missing it. You're having this feast, and it's all about the food, and it's all about the drinking. And he says, don't you have a home you can go to? Eat before you come so that you can wait patiently for everyone to show up so you can all eat at one time if you're that hungry. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, when we think about our communion practices, and if you've been a part of South Hills Church or maybe some other church, typically when you have communion or the Lord's Supper, it's just one little cracker and um, a little, you know, cup of juice, right? And you're thinking to yourself afterwards, you're like, man, I wish there was a little more. Ever felt that way? <laughs> like, man, that juice was good. I could use a whole cup of that, right? But you're like, man, I want more. And it's, it's not a meal that's going to fill you up. 
And the question many people have is, well, why? Why is it so little back then they had a full feast? That'd be great. Uh, here's the deal. I think over the course of time throughout history, no church wants to, be, wants to fall guilty of the, 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 the sin of the early church in Corinth, where it's about the food and who gets more and who doesn't get any and, and how much we get and a focus being on that and not leveling the playing field. And so I think the church over time has just simply said, we're going to focus on the same for everyone. And it's just this little symbol, this element that's not designed to fill you up, but it's designed to point you to Christ and what He's done for you. So I think there's some beauty in that. And, and you're, so it just helps you understand, well, why just the small cracker, the little bit of juice? No, we all want more. Um, that's why Paul says you have homes. You can eat there. But the point of the Lord's Supper is to point us to Christ, a symbol. It's a reminder of what He has done. So that's, that's what He's going on. That's what He's saying. Now, after that, then he says, okay, now he goes on to the teaching. So that's the critique. Now he teaches the um, uh, practice. In verse 23, he says, for I receive from the Lord, he reminds them, you're missing it. Now let me get to the right point. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the Apostle Paul is referring back to the night uh, that Jesus was uh, betrayed. This is before he went, just before he went to the cross. It was the Passover meal. He brought the disciples together. And the Passover was a significant celebration. It was an annual feast to commemorate the, the freedom of the, the, the slaves, the Israelites, out of, of uh, uh, Egypt. And so that was a, it was a very significant and important feast. And at that celebration, the Passover celebration, Jesus takes the bread and the cup and he redefines the Passover for the Christian. He says, listen, it has been a celebration of freedom from slavery from Egypt, but let me tell you something else. Now I want you to recognize that what, what I'm about to do is give you freedom from sin and I'm going to give you salvation, not from slavery in Egypt, but salvation uh, for eternity. This is what Jesus is, is, is doing, and he's redefining the practice for the Christian in this moment. And he says, I'm going to give you these two very powerful symbols, the bread and the cup. And he starts with the bread, and he says, the bread that he breaks, he said, this represents my body, which is broken, and it's given for you. Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross for our sins in our place. And the bread represents what Christ has done for us. And he says, you're to do this in remembrance of me. Now, all the, by the way, this makes sense for them after the crucifixion, of course, but it's the practice of the Christian church ever since because Jesus redefines what this is and, and, it, and it's made it a practice for us. So this is where he starts. Then he goes on and he talks about the cup. He says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So now he's talking about the cup, and he's saying this cup represents not just there's the bread that represents my body that was given, but this cup represents my blood that was shed. This new covenant that God is making between uh, man and God, that, that no more sacrifices are necessary, that Jesus' death on the cross is the final ultimate sacrifice for our sins. No further sacrifice is necessary. He made it possible for us to be made right with God through his sacrifice and the, the shedding of his blood. It's good news. This is, the, this is what he's talking about. Now, when it, we come to communion in these elements, Jesus explains what they represent. But there still are, in, throughout Christendom, 
different views on communion. And depending on your tradition or your background, um, it may be helpful for you to understand the various views. And so just for a moment, let me just talk about some of the, the views when it comes to communion, this communion time. There's three views on it. The first one is this, transubs, transubstantiation, which is a mouthful, the word, you know, theological word to say. This is really a view that the Catholic Church holds when it comes to the Lord's Supper, the communion time. And the, their, their view on it is that when the bread and cup, the bread and cup actually become the body and blood of Christ, that when the, the bread and the cup is consecrated by the priest, then it doesn't change in terms of it, what it looks like, but it actually becomes the physical body and the blood of Christ. That's transubstantiation. That's the view of the Catholic Church. Some of you have that background and you understand it. That's how they, their view on it. Then there's a second view, um, which is consubstantiation. This is the view of many, the Lutheran Church primarily, and some Protestant churches as well, which they view it as Jesus is present in, with, and under the bread and the cup. And so it's a little bit different view. It doesn't, like, the bread and the cup don't physically become the body and blood, but it's Jesus' presence is manifest in it. So the way that I kind of picture that is a, like a sponge. You have a sponge, and it is a sponge, but if you wring out the sponge, water comes out, right? So there's, it's present in the sponge, even though that's what it is. Or a hot iron, um, you're ironing, it's, it's what an iron, but heat comes out of it. So it's the presence of God. And that's how, kind of how they view and describe the, the communion time. Then there's a third view, is the representation view, um, which is the view that we hold to at South Hills Church and, and many Protestant churches as well. That is the bread and the cup are a symbolic reminder of the body and blood of Christ. So it's a symbolic reminder that God uses and has throughout history uses symbols to help remind us uh, of what he's done in a spiritually significant way. So very, a clear example of that is the, after the flood um, with you know, Noah, there's the, the promise that God makes that he'll never flood the earth again. And the symbol the, of that promise is what? The rainbow that he gives to us. So, so it's a symbolic reminder of a promise, a spiritually significant um, truth that he has shared. So it's the same thing here where the bread and the cup for us is a symbolic reminder. And that's what Christ said. He said, this, this bread um, is my body. Not physically, we don't believe it's physically his body, but it represents his body. And we take it in remembrance of what he has done for us. So that's kind of the, the idea there and the different views just to kind of help you give, get a little bit of a background. Now, he continues on in his teaching, not just to explain the elements and why, why it is, but then he gives another reason why we celebrate communion. In verse 26, he says this, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this is a significant verse, and I'll just mention a few things about it. First of all, he says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup. He doesn't give um, us, there's no mandated um, uh, frequency in terms of how you celebrate communion, how often you celebrate communion. It just says whenever. So it's not like here's how often or when you do it. And, and many traditions do it differently. You know, Passover was once a year. And so I, I guess you could, I suppose you could say, well, it's a once a year thing. I don't know any churches that do communion once a year or the Lord's Supper once a year, but I guess that's possible. Some churches, some traditions, maybe you're familiar with, have it, do it weekly. It's um, a time of communion. Some do it monthly. Some do it quarterly. At South Hills Church, we do it maybe seven to nine times a year. Um, but, but there's really no, like, here's the one way to do it. And so just there's, there's freedom in that for churches to follow because, again, it says whenever you eat and whenever you drink, 
That's the, the, the frequency. But then he talks about what it means. And this is important. He says, whenever you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's not only that you remember what Christ has done, but you're also proclaiming to others what Christ has done. So when we celebrate communion, we're proclaiming the death of Christ. And you may think, well, that's kind of morbid. Well, here's the, here's the reality. When we're proclaiming the death of Christ, this is not bad news. This is good news. This is actually the gospel. So when the Bible talks about the gospel, it is about Christ dying for us. And so for those of you who just need a reminder of what the gospel is, and I'll just I say the gospel and I call it the good news because that's literally what it means. For some of you who are not have a church background, the gospel is a, a genre of music, okay? So it's, it's, it's more than that. It's the good news that we find in Scripture. And the good news is this, that Jesus died in my place for my sins. That's the good news. In order to get to the good news, we have to understand some bad news. And the bad news has to do with us. The good news is about Jesus. The bad news is about us. The bad news is that all of us, the scripture says, and whether we like to admit it or not, it's true. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all of us are sinful. We do things we, we wish we didn't do. We fall into habits that we wish we didn't have. We hurt people with our words and our actions. We all sin and we fall short of God's perfect standard. Now, with that, the bad news is worse because not only we sin, but it says in Scripture that the penalty for our sin is death. Death is separation. So when you sin against someone, there's a break in the relationship, isn't there? There's a separation. In the same way, when we sin, there's a separation between us and God. And that's what death is. It's separation. That's the bad news. The good news is this. Guess what? Jesus died in my place for my sins. That God loved us so much that he said, listen, I want to take the penalty of your sin. I will die in your place for your sins. That's the good news. That's what Christ has done for us. So then the question is, well, what's my response? My response is this, is to repent and believe. To repent and believe, to trust in him. And listen, here's my question. Have you ever done that? Have you ever put your faith and trust in the good news of what Jesus has done for you? And here's my invitation. Consider what Christ has done for you. Consider putting your faith and trust in Him. The Bible says that God so loved the world, that is, He loved each and every one of us, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That is a gift. God wants to give you the gift of forgiveness and life. And the invitation is yours. You receive it through faith. It's turning from putting faith and confidence in yourself and abandoning all of that and saying, God, I need to put my faith and trust in you because you did what I couldn't do. You died for my sins so that I could have forgiveness and freedom and life. Experience that. The invitation is there. I want to encourage you to consider placing your faith in Christ and what he has done for you. This is the good news and it's too good to pass up. So when we celebrate communion, we're proclaiming this good news, what Christ has done, and it is good news. Now, he goes on and he gives some application, and I just have to kind of, kind of summarize this a little bit more quickly, but let me, just, let me just talk about this. So he says this in verse 27, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Then verse 28, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ and eat and drink, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. 
But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. And so here Paul ends with the application. Here's what he's, he's directing them to do, and he even says, I'll give you more direction, but here's the direction that he gives. And there's a whole lot there that we could unpack, but one of the big questions is, why, why are they coming under judgment? What's the judgment that, they, that he wants them to avoid, and how is he asking, inviting them to do that? How is the, the practically simply saying, this is a better way. And the question comes back to the very first verse in, in 27, which is when he speaks about don't approach uh, this communion, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner, in an unworthy manner. And you can look at all this, and it's, 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 it's a whole lot. And, but what I want you to understand, it's not as complicated as maybe you think it is. And so let me just talk about this first concept here, not approaching communion in an unworthy manner. Because if we get that, I think the rest will make a little bit more sense to us. So when it comes to this question of what does unworthy mean, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It's not about your righteousness and absence of sin. When you come to the Lord's table, when you come to communion, listen very, very closely. It does not mean that you have to somehow come all cleaned up, that you have to somehow prove to God that you're committed to Him, that you're righteous, and that you don't have any sin. Do you understand that? Because that is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is us simply saying, I'm not righteous. I am broken. I am sinful. I can't. Only you can. Please help me. That's the gospel. So communion is not saying I've got to clean myself up and prove to God how great I am. I'm worthy of taking this bread and cup. No, communion is simply saying I'm unworthy. That's why I have to take the bread and cup because it reminds me that I have worth and value only in you and the work that you have done for me. Does that make sense? I think this is very, very important and it's very, very important that we get it because um, we can get confused by that in some ways. For me, as a kid growing up in the church, you know, there was this, this, you know, hey, don't come to communion in an unworthy way and examine yourself. There's sin, you'll be judgment. And I just remember being freaked out about communion because I'm like, oh man, if I don't have my life together and I haven't examined all my sins, I'm going to be zapped, right? And so it's like, oh man, I was mean to my brother. I lied to my mom and I probably did like 10 other things that I can't think of right now. But if I don't think of them, I'm doomed, right? And so I can't do communion because I don't have my act together. I'm not worthy. And I had all this fear and anxiety. That's not the point of this passage. I just want you to understand it. It's not coming all cleaned up, perfect, no sin, have to examine, have to list everything you've ever done to be worthy of communion. Does that, does it make sense? It's so important that we get that. So what does it mean? Listen, it says unworthy. It means not doing it on purpose, it means that they were coming together, just the context of the early church, they were coming together and they were focused on the food. How much can I eat? How much can I eat? And they're getting drunk. They're missing the purpose. They're missing the point. So they're doing it in an unworthy way. They're not discerning what the Lord's Supper is about and they're not caring for the body of Christ in the process. And so it does not mean uh, doing it, it means not doing it intentionally while remembering the death of Jesus. So when we come to the communion table, when we come to this Lord's Supper, it means we, we don't have to have perfection. 
That's why we need Jesus. That's why he had the gospel. But we come saying, God, I'm intentionally coming and remind, remind myself what you have done and recognizing I'm unworthy. You only alone can make me worthy. Now, all of us, do we need to examine ourselves? Yes. David says, search me and know me, O God. We got to say, God, reveal to me what you need to change in my life. But if you don't have it all figured out, guess what? Join the club. We haven't all figured it all out. And so we come to the communion time intentionally, purposely saying, it's not me showing my commitment to you, God. It's your commitment to me that I'm remembering. Okay? It's just important that we get that. We understand that as we come into it. Now, all that said, let me just show you verse 33, because it's important that we get this as well. Verse 33, kind of at the end of this passage, he says this, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. So let me point out a few things. First of all, he's simply saying, listen, don't, you're missing the point if you're trying to get the food early and drink too much. He said, go home, eat, so you come back not so hungry. But the point is you do it together, that there's something beautiful about being united and sharing in this time together that what Christ has done for us. So that's part of communion, that we would eat together. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together at one time. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And if you're watching online, just prepare you for that. We're going to be celebrating communion. And that's important. But the other thing that I want you to see here in this verse, is it says, so then my brothers and sisters. And why I point that out is because the Apostle Paul is talking to brothers and sisters, those, those who are in the family of Christ already, those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And this is important to get because I talked about this earlier, that communion is for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so if you have yet to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we celebrate communion here in just a moment, you have a couple options. And the first one is just let it pass by. Let it pass by. And I say that not to embarrass you or to make you feel bad. No one's focused on it. In fact, if you're just being honest about where you're at, we commend you for that. We don't want you to come in here and try to, you know, you know, try to put on a show. That's not it. Be honest. Recognize where you're at. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, it's okay pass. And then when you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll take communion. It'll mean so much more at that time. That's the idea. So you can go ahead and let it pass. Um, but the second option that I want to give to you, which I would more strongly prefer, is that before we take this communion time, you would embrace the gospel. That you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, that you would, before we even take communion today, recognize that this is an opportunity for you to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. For you to stop and say, yep, my efforts, my work, all the stuff that I've been doing, it's not working. And I need forgiveness. I need peace and I need hope. And it's not working for me. I need to look to God for that help. And trusting what Jesus did, that he died in my place for my sins. All we have to do is repent and believe. That's the invitation that I want to give to you. That would be my strong preference. And then participate in communion with us with great joy because of what Christ has done for you. To be the forgiver of your life, the leader of your life, and to give you, give you joy and peace that you cannot uh, attain on your own. Uh, so that's the invitation. So let's take a moment. Let's pray. I'll give you an opportunity to, to pray uh, and come before the Lord. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. And then after we pray, we'll, we'll participate in communion together. God, as we come before you at this time, God, I, I know that there are those here who have yet to put their faith in, in you. And Lord, this is that time, a moment for them to do that. And so I'll just say this, if you are here today and you have yet to put your faith in Christ, but you're ready, it's a, this is your opportunity to say, God, I, 
in your own words, just say, God, I believe in you. I'm going to stop trusting in myself and I'm going to start trusting in you. I need your forgiveness. I need your peace. I need, I need your help and the hope that only you provide. So I recognize that Jesus died in my place for my sins. I'm going to receive that forgiveness and invite you to be the leader of my life. You pray that prayer. God answers. Forgive you. He'll be with you. Give you the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he gives you eternal life. It's the greatest gift you could ever receive. God, for those of us who have already received that great gift of your salvation, we just say thank you. And as we come into this time, Lord, we help us, help us to come in uh, to this time uh, with intentionality, remembering who you are and what you've done and how much you love us. We thank you for this time, Lord, in your name. Amen.